think one thing that makes Spike Spike and I say this lovingly and kind of as a critique is um, he's very heavy handed um, when he wants to make a point. Um, he's going to make it and he's going to do it on level 10 and he's going to keep making that point until he feels that you got it. A bold voice. Hmm. You're not going to have subtlety. Um, <laughs> you, yeah. You're going to know exactly how he feels uh, <laughs> right from the jump. Um, True. There's going to be a lot of too. energy. Just that's him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He's one of the few filmmakers where his personality is also on the screen. Mm. Um, there's a lot of energy there's a lot of color there's a lot of movement there's a lot of music there's probably going to be a big music number somewhere whether it's in the opening credits or in the middle somewhere there's going to be a big music cue and a dance cue or you might have uh, a couple of those scenes throughout the film you're going to have honesty and you're going to have vulnerability Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode and another month of a podcast directed by. So this month, we are taking a look at Spike Lee. And if things uh, all go right, and like you just never know when you're bringing in guests, but we, we are planning to have two guests as our experts. One of them is Randy Wilkins, who happens to be an editor who has worked with Spike Lee. So that's pretty exciting if, if that comes true. Um, and the second one is named Kylan Stewart, and they are a and a burgeoning filmmaker who counts Spike Lee as one of their main influences. So hopefully we'll have those two guests, maybe just one. You never really know what's going to happen, but that is what we're doing. So Mike, we are now jumping into Spike Lee month. So what is your history with Spike Lee movies? Is this, is this something as like a, you know, as a young cinephile you got into, or is it something you came to later? Mm, I wouldn't say that I got into necessarily a lot of his movies when I was younger because uh, starting with our our first one, uh, there there is sexual content. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the the premise of the very first film, uh, the the hooking up nature. Uh, but you see it uh, all through, uh, even something like his basketball movie. Uh, there is probably um, an infamous <laughs> subplot with a prostitute that even fans of that film uh, aren't too high on. At least in my mm-hmm. reading up, uh, I've seen some complaining about that. So there's always like a sexual element uh, to his films, usually. Uh, so not when I was really young, uh, because I am an American and we choose uh, to see violence at an early right. age over any sort of sexual content. Uh, but I would say my first experience was probably do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just because at some point my dad or somebody said, you're into movies, you should see this. And I probably watched it, uh, far too young to really understand the sort of political ramifications <laughs> of it. Like it was to me like oh, this is like a cool hangout movie, like <laughs> dazed and confused, you know, just a day in the life in a neighborhood and, until it's not, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> all of a sudden, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, off and on um, and maybe this comparison will come up in this particular episode, but I've always thought of him as sort of a Woody Allen like character, just in the sense that he's a New Yorker and he has mm. produced a lot of content and much like that filmmaker, uh, I've not kept up with everything. Like if the premise that particular year uh that whatever he was working on didn't grab me i just wouldn't watch it so i'm not the most avid spike lee uh nor woody allen fan but i've seen the hits how about that i've mm. seen the, the big pieces that break through but uh I, I don't know that's not a negative right to knock no. someone for working and like, no. pursuing their passion like that's what i would do if i was a filmmaker but yeah i'm by no means an expert on spike lee yeah, so for me, Spike Lee, I think, was actually one of the the first filmmakers I really got into, like, as a high school student. Like, just randomly rented, do the right thing. And, like you, was probably a little bit too young to really appreciate what he was going for. It's a movie I've rewatched a bunch and, like, okay, now I, I feel like I get what you're going for. But I did, I think, even as a high school student, see something there that I was like, I need to see more of his movies. And I got really into Spike Lee movies for, like, a good year there and I kind of I went through as much as I could find and this is something that maybe maybe people who are getting into film as young people don't understand now because most things you can find 
right? Most things are streaming. And if you want to, you know, go the pirating route, you can find pretty much everything you want. But it used to be like if it wasn't at your Blockbuster or your Hollywood video or your local mom and pop shop, like, okay, well, I guess I just can't see that. And She's Gotta Have It fell into that category. Like I couldn't, for whatever reason, couldn't find that one everywhere. But I watched that. I watched Jungle Fever, Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X, you know, like kind of, I think there's only two movies on this list that I hadn't seen before. And it was She's Gotta Have It and Four Little Girls, um, which I remember hearing a lot about Four Little Girls because uh, I think it was, was that the one did I mean, I'm pretty sure it got Oscar nominated. I can't remember if it won an Oscar, but it got a lot yes. of publicity. So I remember hearing uh, it about it. It was also, that. yeah, also, I think, uh, originally intended just to air on HBO and then they did some screenings of it so that it would get awards recognition. <laughs> Actually, this so is really good. One. Let's put this, let's put this on some screens and get that yeah, gold. Um, but that was probably one that, uh, I think that was 97, somewhere in that. Uh, when Sounds we get right. to the episode, we'll, We'll uh, fact check that, but uh, that was one that at least was uh, more widely available just because HBO, I remember at the time, was really pushing it yeah. after, you know, it's uh, Oscar contention. For sure. So is there is there a movie uh, this month that you're looking forward to talking about or you're like kind of antsy about talking about? Like, because there's mm. some, this is, well, this is one of the first, <laughs> this is definitely the first time we've done a black filmmaker. On this sh- on this show. Speaking and- of being antsy, uh, <laughs> putting yourself on the record as two white guys uh, throwing this out there to the internet with all of their lovely comments. Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, probably uh, you know Spike Lee. Uh, he he likes to unlike uh, Woody Allen, who uh, I think plays it arguably fairly safe as far as mm-hmm. like putting out like similar type of material and going back to similar themes. Uh, and non-threatening Spike material, Lee, I think, too. What do you, you uh, know, yeah, Spike you know? Lee is definitely <laughs> pointing uh, his finger in your face and is uh, trying to, to stir things up. So okay. uh, I I was not really looking forward to it because <laughs> you when you pick the directors, as you do with Scorsese, you tend to pick heavy material yep. uh, that is hard to just uh, come in and have fun with. That's not to say some of these, some of these selections are just fun. Like mm-hmm. when we get to Inside Man – that's a really fucking fun movie. That's just a really cool popcorn thriller. Um, but the one strangely that I, uh, was most looking forward to watching was jungle fever because mm-hmm. I had seen it before, but I didn't remember much about it. All I remember was, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character as the, the brother, but not much else. And it's like, okay, I know that's about an interracial relationship, but why, <laughs> Why do I have no recollection of that? So it's kind of a fresh watch. Um, the 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 one that's a true fresh fresh watch for me will be Malcolm X because of its runtime. Uh, I uh, had always stayed away from it because, as we talked about during Scorsese's month with the Aviator, I'm not really a fan of that type of movie where it's mm-hmm. a man's life story. <laughs> this uh, is this is Mike's kryptonite. It's it's a oh. biopic and it's three and a half oh. hours long. Oh, I, was, yeah. I honestly didn't remember how long it was until like I queued it up and I was like, oh man, really? Okay. I guess I guess that's what we're doing this month. Sorry, Mike. Uh but, but I think thankfully, just the way it uh pairs out, the one I'm most looking forward to is there. So Jungle Fever and Malcolm X together. So, you know, it worked out for me kind of, Um, (laughs) but that's funny because I'm, I think Malcolm X other than do the right thing is probably his most well-regarded or generally perceived as his most well-regarded other than do the right thing. So that, that'll be interesting for me that that's the, the the one that I, uh, I'll be a rookie to. Yeah. I think the one I'm most excited uh, to talk about, and this will make you laugh probably is a little Ed Norton uh, showing up in the 25th hour. That's that's the one I'm looking forward to. So, so much consistent hate on this look, podcast. I knew records. that if I didn't make that joke, you would. So I'm just I'm just beating Jesus. you to the punch. But the other thing I'm interested in talking about because I was actually just on um, another podcast and I was talking to the the host uh, like kind of after we had got done recording, and he had mentioned Spike Lee's treatment of women in his films. And I, for the life of me, I was like, really? And then like rewatching some of these, uh, we'll get into. Spike Lee's maybe not so great treatment of women. So that'll be interesting to talk about. Uh, it's something that like, I think a lot of it is because I watched a lot of Spike Lee movies when I was in high school. Uh, and now like going back to them, I'm like, Oh, hmm. Didn't really think about that aspect as like a, you know, 16 year old boy that didn't really <laughs> occur to me. So it'll be interesting That's to one watch of the, these uh, with- benefits of 
this little podcast mm-hmm. concept of yours is that you sort of mainline a man's work, like yep. a lifetime of their work. And uh, yeah, you're, you're going to see all of the uh, the the bad bits as yep. well. Yep. It's going to be you can't avoid them. So, yeah, we've got yep. I don't know if that's a good way to hype this up because there's a lot of good stuff here. But there yes, is. surely yes. there there are some things that uh, maybe have not aged that well. And I yes. think that's probably a good segue to she's got to have it. Uh, yeah, I think that's the perfect segue <laughs> to she's got to have it. She's got to have it. I think this feels like a running theme, but it, it to me, the first thing I think of she, is she's got to have it is really the backstory and how it came to be more so than the actual film. The film is great. The film for that time is innovative and it's different. And it was refreshing to see a, a black love story told in that manner. Um, and in a lot of ways, the black love story isn't necessarily the relationship in my mind between Nola and the three men. It's Nola with herself. It is a little messy. You know, it's not a perfect film by any means, but it is fun to watch from the beginning to the end. I'm not sure if I had seen like basically a movie where the whole thing was breaking the fourth wall. I'm not sure if I've seen that before. I watched this maybe for the first time when I was going into college, so about 13, 14 years ago. And I definitely feel different now than when I first saw it because I'm catching I've grown and I'm catching more things that are like not okay or that I can identify with I think it was really groundbreaking for the time and even now it's a little groundbreaking so as I mentioned this was the first time I had seen this I the only thing I really knew about it was like it's his first movie and from what I had been told oh it's a sex comedy even the if you look at the 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 like the art on IMDb at the top of the picture it says a seriously sexy comedy that is how it is it is advertised uh so what was your reaction to watching she's got to have it well i'd seen this one before and uh i can't remember if i bought it at a uh like a video store or something like that because <laughs> i i did have just a mom and pop uh video store we had two in my small town <laughs> and when they removed because they didn't have enough space like for for all the movies they were reading they were not going to grow you know, the, so eventually they would have to cull their collection. And when they pulled something and mm. put it in the like, you know, this is for sale area, uh, it was no longer available for rent. So huh. like you, I, I had this fear when I after I saw Do the Right Thing uh, where I was like, shit, this will be the only way I can watch this is I have to actually purchase it. I have to make the investment. This will be good. And I didn't think it was good. <laughs> when I was a teenager. I did not. <laughs> I, I felt kind of ripped off. It's um, not really a movie for have... teenagers, I don't think. I think this is a little. It feels like a you know, it feels like a student film in a lot of ways. It feels like a first film, and it's maybe not yes. as polished as his later work. So watching this as like a sixteen-year-old, you're like, "What is this? This is not do well, the right uh, thing." Okay, it's it's an unfair uh, step back if you've seen Do the Right Thing. Yes. Uh, to, to this and i know we're we're skipping uh school days uh in between there but uh yeah if 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 you're coming back to this which i don't i have no experience with the uh the now canceled uh, netflix series I, I didn't watch any of that so i don't know if maybe there have been people that are coming from that show well, to maybe. this movie because i'm sure netflix had them side by side um <laughs> I okay, I would take issue with the uh you know, a seriously sexy comedy. In in the sense I don't think there's anything really anything really sexy here. Uh, and maybe it was then, but Is it the only sex the rap- scene or rape scene? Isn't that like I mean there's not a lot yeah. of, you know, and I they mean, call it some... out in the movie. It's not as if we're putting that on, you know, with 2019 eyes like she says that to him. Right after, yeah, I mean, there's, and, and the, there's the, intimacy in other spots in the movie, but as far as like a love scene, a sex scene, it's it's forced. Yeah, uh, which is funny because it does have this sort of extremely sort of naturalistic vibe to it, where you feel like you're. And I don't know, I haven't followed up with the, the actors, but the only one to me that's recognizable is Spike Lee, and particular. I think he his, gives the best performance too in, in the movie. Yeah. Like, uh, and everyone else seems like a friend or, you know, it has right, that, right. uh, clerk's vibe. It yep. has like Dante and Randall. Like you have people that Kevin Smith could just get, yep. uh, yep. and there is a certain charm to it. And I, I think it is helped by having the characters, you know, talking to this film crew, uh, like, like it's a documentary. 
that helps it stylistically. I, I don't know how it would sit with people now where it's three men uh, talking to this outside observer, which I guess is you, the audience, about all their problems with this this woman uh, who basically – I don't think this is not word for word, but in their viewpoint is a woman they can't tame. And uh-huh. they just don't understand why she won't bend to uh, their particular whims, which is to – I don't know, have this – have this domestic sort of relationship or courtship. Uh, and they never, I, I think uh, even now I keep waiting for them to maybe challenge themselves or have a little bit of self-awareness uh, about why they are so infatuated with someone, like why they, they need to like own this person. Cause it, I don't think it's ever, I, I don't think it's ever played up in the film. Like it's a surprise, like that one of them finds out she's like cheating. I think that everyone is like aware of the situation that they're in like this strange horse race. Right. For, for Nola's affections, um, and it, it, you know, I mentioned him earlier, and uh, this, you know, this is going to get film Twitter to if they've not turned it off by now. It, not only does it feel like a student film, but it feels very much like Woody Allen. It feels heavily influenced by Woody Allen, and you know, there's also a director with issues in regard to you know how he deals with female characters. Like he's had some very strong, uh, he writes strong roles for women. But I don't think anyone would want to, especially now, <laughs> want to take their cues from a Woody Allen uh, male character on how to, to treat women. Uh, and that's certainly not the case here. Now, I will say that I don't think Spike Lee is saying that any of these characters are in the right, though, either. Nope. Like, I think they are kind of played uh, like they're an idiot. You know, that's this is, you know, Kevin Smith was uh, heavily influenced by Spike Lee. And I actually, like, thought about that. Like, the, the problem there, and I guess I'm a pose this question to you dave is is that excusable for the entire runtime for directors to be like look at these male pigs look at how stupid they are but there is they are enticing you to kind of revel in their bad behavior and their sort of uh poor treatment of in particular this woman but kevin smith the same thing like chasing amy is a prime example of us reveling in these stupid guys and how they mistreat this woman for like 90 plus minutes yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think what sets this apart a little bit, and this is not a movie that I'm like, oh my god, this was so great, I can't wait to watch this again. I can't imagine that I would ever be like, yeah, I'm really in the mood for She's Gotta Have It. I'm going to throw that on right Which now. makes like, it all the stranger than Netflix. This is the one right. that got adapted into right. a series. <laughs> I mean, I, I get why, because you have this kind of rotating cast of characters, and it's high drama, and, and romance, and sex, and all that. It makes sense that you would want to make a show out of that. But I like the fact that it starts off kind of from her perspective, like kind of talking about like, I'm going to set the record straight here, which I think separates it from a Kevin Smith movie, which treats women as like aliens or foreign beings that like, I just don't understand. Let's look closer. Like, it's very, it's very kind of leery. an honest assessment from Kevin Smith. Yes. I mean, (laughs) I don't think any of that is is a dishonest expression of who he is. Um, I find it interesting that, I mean, some of it's because, like, Spike Lee, I think, gives himself the best role out of all the men. Like, the one who comes off the best. Like, he's still sweet. He's dumb. He doesn't really get it. But he's he's got all the, like, snappy lines, and he's got the comebacks, and he's got the joking. Whereas you have the other guy who, like, ends up being a rapist. And then the, the third guy who's, like, just, like, a workout freak and just constantly, you know focused on his own reflection. I found it interesting that Spike's like, you didn't I'll, like, I'll play the little funny guy. Yeah, he's good. So you, you like, uh, we're getting some insight into, uh, to Dave, what he likes in the bedroom. Uh, it's a person wearing we? panties on their head. Uh, I mean, you know, that's going back to, uh, the holiday with, uh, Jude Law and like right. Mr. Napkin. Mr. Napkin head. Yeah. Uh, I actually like the, the, the fitness freak, you would. uh, because you have this sequence where he, that, that is not a man who's going to, uh, you know, throw a woman down and make passionate love to her. He's going to fold every single article of clothing he has that first. That scene was like and so awkward. I cannot deal with that. See, it's like he, uh, just presenting his, uh, physique as some sort of a foreplay, but a also gift. folding it's a gift clothes. to you, young lady. Here you go. Yeah, it's, this movie, it's like, it was really hard to access, but there are moments that are really funny. Like, I think the setup of, like, the, the Thanksgiving dinner is pretty great. Like, that's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, because I think in a lot of, with a lesser writer and a lesser director, like, this could just be, like, kind of, hijinks and high drama and yelling and screaming and it never really gets there it's just like we're all here 
let's make the best of it. Let's try to interact. And then, of course, you see the people, of course, that can't handle it are the men. We just can't function. And she feels like she would have been fine to, like, mess around with all three of these guys separately. Like, I don't see the problem. And I think it's also really indicative of the time. This is made in 1986. Um, So you have a little bit more freedom there than maybe you would have in a movie focused like this in the in the 50s or 60s, you know? So I think I think that's really interesting to watch. And I think what Spike is doing with the camera is really interesting in this movie. Like, you can, t- it is one of those movies that, yes, it does feel like a student film or like a first film. But you can tell immediately that there's, like, passion and talent involved here. Even though, I would say, other than Spike Lee, I'm not sure there's a strong actor in the bunch here. They're all very stunted in the way they deliver lines. It's very clearly, like... Well, as you said, like, come on, friends, let's do a movie. Here's some cue cards. Read your lines, you know? So I think there, it would be interesting if this movie was made by him later in his career, because I think there is a, there's a lot of like high emotion here that never really gets communicated because you have amateur actors here and an amateur director, but someone who's going to be great. It's certainly no mean streets where you just happen to have Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro Niro. as part of the the gang of knuckleheads uh yeah um it does it is definitely a calling card film though because Mm -hmm. if you have a problem or you can just sort of see the strings being pulled uh there's a lot of respect that you have to give to spike lee for his direction uh for the for the editing because everything i think he you know he he gives all of his actors pitches they can hit and he gets out of scenes pretty quickly i mean this is a you know it's an 84 minute movie so it never overstays its welcome. Mm-hmm. But these type of movies, I, I wonder if we do a disservice to them just because he became such a big filmmaker, such a name. Like, I mean, a Spike Lee joint. You know, he yeah. he was the marketing hook for his movies. He would work with people like Denzel Washington. But for the most part, you were going to see it because it was a Spike Lee movie. And, you know, this <laughs> – do, do we look at this and sort of hold his greater work? works that he actually should achieve because you you should expect someone an artist to get better at their craft as they go on but it's almost like we're all johnny come lately's and we come back to it and we're like well it's not as good as do the right thing and it's like well no <laughs> it's not shit. as good as one of the greatest <laughs> films ever made yeah oh okay fine i mean spoiler for the second half of our episode it's pretty good right <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's it's also interesting to watch this because I, I don't know if you had this experience when you first watched it or now, but of course this character of Mars Blackman that Spike Lee plays became really famous, right? This became like the, the shoe commercial character with the I'm pretty sure the, I was uh, aware of him with Michael Jordan as his co-star before I'd seen She's Gotta yeah. Have It. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, he sells sneakers. Right. That, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so when he shows up here, there is like a little bit for me, there's like an immediate draw to that character. Because, like, oh, I know that guy. That guy's entertaining. That guy's funny. Okay, he's going to talk a mile a minute. This is going to be a good time. And I think in some ways that is, like, as you were kind of hinting at, a disservice to the movie. Because, like, there are bits of that character there, but this is not the Mars Blackman show, right? This is not quick cuts. This is not, you know, him showing off his fashion. It's not that. Like, he is a side character in this movie. But because he, of course, knows the material as he wrote the entire script, He's the one who clearly is most comfortable. So I think maybe that's why I'm drawn to that character more. Cause like, Oh, you know what you're doing. And it's something I think we'll come back to, uh, throughout this month is the fact that like Spike Lee, pretty goddamn good actor. Like in terms of director actors, there's not many better, you know, like I had actually put this question up on Twitter and there was a lot of course like Hitchcock, but Hitchcock just kind of like shows up in the back of the. Yeah, the scene. I don't don't think that counts. That's a cameo, you know. Like, and he's certainly better than M Night. You know, like M Night who consistently puts himself in his movies and gives himself a monologue, and you're kind of like, okay, let's go. Whereas here, he seems to fit uh, in the in the film. Hitchcock is definitely better than M Night, and maybe people (laughs) are um, they're answering your question with the thought of his uh, presentations. From his uh, TV series, Albert it's like, oh, he's presents. charming. Yeah. He was a funny guy. Yes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I, I don't know. I, I I don't think I can answer. Uh, I, I don't feel comfortable answering like how this sits with people now. Like when you were talking about this film, that it's sort of representative of its time. Uh, I I don't know if we've 
come any further as far as uh, portraying female sexuality on film without some sense of slut shaming yeah. a woman. Like, I actually think we've probably are far more conservative. Oh, we've regressed. Probably I, more I conservative in our art. So, uh, yeah, well, this one, you know, it does have some issues uh, as far as, I guess, who's telling the story because she is outnumbered, you know, but by the, the, the conceit of the film, there are going to be three other voices, three male voices that are kind of talking shit about her uh, as they, as they try to win her like a trophy. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a film that's, that, that is close to this uh, in style uh, dealing with this type of relationship. And usually it's more, like ensemble sex comedies where it's right. maybe partners, you know, trading off in some sort of way. And you're just like, it's like a way for the audience to just like pick who they want to end up together. And I, I don't know. I don't, I think this is like, like with love spikes work probably is just, uh, joyously abrasive in the, in the way it's sort of like, it's a sex comedy, but I, I think it makes you feel very uncomfortable throughout. So that's, that's hard to pull off. And for the most part, I think, I think you did. Yeah. Do you feel like, do you, as you watch this movie, is there a character that you feel like the movie takes the side of? Do you think this is her story, or do you think it like angles itself itself towards these other three? Well, I, I mean, I think that it's hard to say now. I think you've kind of hit on something where you lean more <laughs> towards uh, Spike Lee's character of of Mars. I, I think that you know his. He probably has the, uh, and it's, we're going to get into Spike's like physical stature here. Like he sort of plays up that he's like a non-threatening. No wonder he loves Ed Norton Jr. No wonder the little guy's (laughs) got to stick together, Mike. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, not only is he the, you know, he's the funny one, the self-proclaimed funny one who's more interested in if he can make a woman laugh. Like when you have lines like that. And you're comparing him to a guy who is a total narcissist and it's all about his own physical form and is basically telling Nola like, hey, don't get fat. <laughs> don't get fat or I'm not into you anymore. Right. Uh, or I guess the actual quote unquote nice guy for most of the film, like the, the sort of business yuppie sort of type um, that is the one that ends up raping her. Uh yeah, uh just when you go through those right. sequences in comparison you're going to fall <laughs> you're going to fall on Mars Blackman. It's like, well, he's not too bad, you know. Right. The, but I don't think you ever are meant to think like Noah's going to like pick him. So even if he's the best, I think right. that for from like minute 5, you know, like well it's going to be none of them. None of these right. people. This is just like this is about a specific point in her life and mm-hmm. that's it. You know, it's interesting you brought up the, the nice guy, the nice guy trope here. Cause I think this is, this film is kind of remarkably prescient in that way. Cause back mm-hmm. in the 80s, you know, especially in sex comedies or romantic comedies, you would have the nice guy and the jerk. And oh God, she likes the jerk. And the nice guy has to win in the end. And this is a movie where the nicest, most well put together guy, probably the guy who would be seen as the most a catch out of these three, you know, he's professional, decent looking. Seems to be really nice to her, has has his life together, and he's the one who ends up being a rapist by the end of the movie. And that is something we see more in movies now where it's like, oh, you can't actually trust the nice guy. But not in 1986. Like, this is crazy to me. Like, as I'm watching this, and as you mentioned, we've gotten a lot more conservative, and I was worried that I would watch this movie and it would be like, oh, God, she's just going to be slut-shaped not only by these other characters, but by the movie. And I don't feel like that's the that's the perspective the movie takes. I don't feel like the movie is like, oh, she got herself into this. She deserves what she got, which is kind of what we get moving forward, not in his filmography, but just in film and art in general. It's this very slut-shaming attitude. And I think that's the difference between having a character treat her poorly and having the actual text treat her poorly. And I think it's easy to pick on Spike Lee in this movie and be like, oh, look. All these people were saying this, but I don't think by the, at least for me, by the end of the movie, I wasn't feeling like Spike Lee himself was saying like, oh, look at this horrible woman. Look, look at the position she put herself in. She got what she deserved. Like you never get that. At least I didn't. I don't know about you. <laughs> what do you think I'm going to answer? Dude? Yes. Well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I totally. Well, blame Spike Lee. Just, <laughs> totally just do it, way. Mike. <laughs> No, I, I think that um, there may be some uh, expectations that 
we're going to have like a release valve moment. Like you get, you're going to get that and do the right thing. Like, and you're going to get that. And, uh, you, you keep picking on little Ed Norton, but you know, there's a famous sequence in that where he's looking in the mirror and he just sort of spews out all this like bile that he has sort of built up. And what's uncomfortable about, she's got to have it in, in particular with that one sequence with the nice guy is it's a physical act. And, you know, dare I say it, it's a crime that's committed. To, to get out, he he doesn't just unleash like sort of this verbal rant of what he's feeling towards her, um, and that that's what makes this film kind of hard to watch at times because uh, I think he feels somewhat justified in what he did at least in the moment because uh, she has just expressed that she wants to have like sort of a physical relationship with that man at times, and so he feels vindicated in treating her like a piece of meat because mm-hmm. he's been called over there and. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, I the a seriously sexy comedy. Uh, I think is a little, <laughs> a little misleading. Yeah, uh, a little a comedy bit. at times that also is about sex, but I think it's got a little bit more on its mind uh, than just being an out and out comedy. And maybe mm-hmm. some people would would uh, hold that against it. I don't know. It's not. It would be far down the rung for me uh, on Spike Lee movies because, like, like you, I don't think that I'm just gonna be in the mood. Again, right. to just to watch this. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing that you bring up in that, you know, scene where he does commit a crime is I am just so glad that they named it in this movie. Uh, that afterwards she says, you raped me. Like, this is not something a lot. And it seemed like that where it's like she is clearly forced, but there is also some some verbal acknowledgement between the two of them. It's not a scene where a stranger, like, you know, grabs her. She's walking by like, this is a, mm-hmm. a sexual relationship already. So I'm glad, especially in 1986, that Spike Lee was saying like, no, this is not in any way. Okay. This is not a gray area. This is black and white. This is rape. Let's just call it what it is. The thing I struggle with, I think in this movie, cause I always think about as we watch these movies, like who would I recommend this to? And this is a really hard movie to recommend to somebody, I think. Unless it's someone's like, oh, I really want to see everything Spike Lee has done. Like, this is difficult. It's not super accessible. It's not something where you're like, yeah, here, have a good time and watch this fun, this fun thing. Yeah, she's got to have it. It's, it's a sex comedy. Have a good time. Like, I'm glad I watched it as a fan of Spike Lee and like wanting to get a whole picture. But this is, this is a really difficult movie to recommend, I think. Feels like uh like a, a, an EP or like a rare like a single that you're reference. trying to collect yeah. mm-hmm. for it for Spike Lee. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think if you are already a fan, um, uh, there is a, a book um, that I remember reading years ago called uh, Spike Mike Slackers and Dykes, and it was I think it was John Pearson who I don't think is a producer. Uh, but he was some sort of film rep. Mm. And so uh, in particular in the 80s, he was really championing uh, a lot of uh, you know voices in film that you wouldn't normally get to see. And, and She's Gotta Have It is featured, I believe, pretty heavily in that mm. book. And it sort of talks about uh, – which even if you just go to the Wikipedia page, you'll see like uh, sort of a funny anecdote where uh, Spike Lee is talking about screening it at NYU. And they still don't have enough money to finish post-production. So he's like, hey, do you like the movie? Good, because I need you to invest in it. So I can finish it like you know, very much like sort of a communal working, uh, nice. working uh, project that we've got here. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it would have been cool at that time because you I, I think it would have been undeniable to say like, oh, that guy's going to go on and do some some cool shit. Oh, yeah. You know, if he gets the finances, hopefully if he's allowed to. Um, but, yeah, like coming at it now, uh, I, I would I would be interested to hear someone say, hey, this is my favorite. Spike Lee movie. I would uh, love to hear, to hear a passionate day. defense. Yeah, um, absolutely. There would be a raised eyebrow just because of the work that comes after. That's a pretty uh, right. tall, tall order. But you know, I, yeah. I mean, stylistically, um, I could see. You know, you, you're you're probably getting because, as we said, he didn't have as much to work with financially right. uh, and with professional uh, actors. I think you're probably getting a lot of tricks that he's throwing out there. So if if you like Spike Lee's style. Like, like that's pretty much this whole movie is just style yep. so if that's the way you lean uh, maybe yeah. but they're still do the right things so yeah they're still uh, that's, that's a tough argument to make it is for sure alright so uh, speaking of do the right thing we're going to take a quick break hear from our experts and then come back and talk about uh, maybe one of the greatest movies ever made 
no pressure. All right, we'll be right back. My takeaway was that it seemed very relatable. I mean, I knew all those people in some form or fashion. Like, I, I, it just seemed very New York, and I just, I just knew those people, and I knew those summers, and I understood opening the fire hydrant, and I knew what it meant when somebody stepped on your sneaker, and um, I went to the pizza shop every day for lunch, and it, it just was, like, very relatable. It wasn't just the politics of it. It was more just I knew that neighborhood. I think I agree with it is an American classic. It's not just a black classic. It is an American classic because the issues presented in, in it are very much American. Um, I think it's beautifully filmed. Um, I think it's equally chaotic, um, but impactful. All right. So we are back to talk about Do the Right Thing. And, you know, this actually kind of made me glad that you were so slow on recording because uh, I would have it would have been oh, awkward. No, I'm thanking you in a roundabout way. Yeah, backhanded. Uh, yes, that that's the only kind I give. <laughs> um, it would have been weird to, like, put this out uh, in January right after Danny Aiello had died and us, like, not make any mention of that. Um so I'm kind of glad we waited to record on this because, you know, we did just lose Danny Aiello. And this is it's interesting because he's had a long and varied career. But I think and rightfully so, this is the movie people think of when they think of Danny Aiello. Like this is probably the greatest performance he's given, uh, I think. He was also I was going to say the greatest movie he's been in, but he was also in The Godfather Part 2 in a smaller part. So that's, you know, those two are probably pretty close to one another, but we're here to talk about Do the Right Thing. Just three years after uh, the first movie we talked about, as you mentioned on that, there was school days in, in between. But it's kind of amazing to see the growth with that short of a period of time. Like you have, you know, what we have kind of called an experimental, it's a student film, it's all style, to one of the best movies ever made. Like that is, it's so early in a career to get there. I think sometimes we're like, oh, well... This this uh, director is building his way to something great, but he, you know, through this, I think, found something great right away. And one of the things I appreciate, I didn't talk about it when we talked about when we talked about the first movie. But uh, one thing I really love about Spike Lee's movies is the opening credits. There's always this like sense of setting the scene and this sense of energy um, to the opening credits. So in some ways, you kind of know what you're getting into um, right away. So you have kind of all you have the you know, the New York neighborhood in the very beginning, and you have kind of this choreographed dance at the beginning of this, like kind of showing the energy and the personality of that neighborhood. And I was just kind of, and you don't see that a lot in movies anymore. Like a lot of directors, you're like, okay, let's just put my name up and let's, let's go to the first scene. And in a lot of Spike movies, he really takes his time with those opening sequences. Um, but I'm sure we'll these are right- that last. We shall yeah, see. In the Netflix era, there's going to be like a skip credit sequence. Oh. <laughs> like you're watching an episode of The Office or something. Sad. Uh, yes. <laughs> just, let's just skip Rosie Perez dancing and get to the uh, the story. And let's watch it at one and a half speed too. Thank you, Netflix. Uh, lovely. Uh, so this is a movie I know both of us have seen multiple times. Actually, one of the first podcasts we were ever on together, I think we talked about Do the Right Thing when we were relitigating it's- the Oscars um of of 1989 yeah, that was for a show i really liked called the the do-over um which i don't know if it came back hosted by jamie do uh i know he like threatened i don't want to say threatened because i enjoyed it but uh said you know he was kicking the tires on that but i don't think you could actually find that episode which for us is probably good yeah i don't know if i want to go back <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, we like... did pick do the right thing, so I mean, we were on the right side. Made of the right choice. History, yes. Uh, of course, we also had at that point like twenty five years after the fact, so um, it was kind of easy. But easy I'd like to, to think, even at eighty nine, I would rank do the right thing over driving Miss Daisy. I, I hope, I hope I would make that choice. But you know, well, you know, Green Book beat Black Klansman, so uh, here we go. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, I think it's interesting. Like I, the experience of watching this movie. And I think the way it's structured is pretty brilliant uh, because there is this build to this big, big moment. But like the majority of this movie is kind of pleasant. 
Like, it's just like, it's the day in the life of this neighborhood, you know, this cast of characters, you're really enjoying it. But I think the, the experience of watching it now, especially with all of the news in the last couple of years about, you know, young black men dying because of the police, like, it's sad how prescient this movie was. Like, as, you know, one of our characters is being choked out and killed by the police, all I could think of was Eric Garner. Like, this is, this happened just, you know, 20 or 30 years later. And I think that's something that's going to repeat as we watch Spike Lee movies is like, these should feel dated. I was 10 years old when this came out. I'm 40 now. And yet, as you watch it, you're like, yeah, I could see this happening right now. I don't have any problem with that. You know, and that is really depressing. So it does cast an even rougher pallor on it than it already is. It's already like the end of this movie is rough anyway. But, like, you throw in the fact that, like, oh, yeah, this is actually still happening. Nothing has really changed. It's pretty upsetting. Yeah, I don't know if that helps or hurts it, um, <laughs> because it does certainly make it more depressing uh, that it's not just about, you know, at this point, the events of Do the Right Thing, while uh, very much a part of, you know, what was going on, certainly in the summer of 1989, when it released, you would hope, I mean, the, the positive outlook would be that, this would feel as dated as driving Miss Daisy did when right. it came out that year. Nope. <laughs> They'd be like, wow, things were crazy back in 1989. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I don't know if that makes it more accessible to, to people as far as it's still like a talking point. It's still sort of culturally relevant or, you know, in the, the age of Marvel and Disney, uh, are, are we grooming people to want even less to do with scary yeah. things that are happening in our lives where we're, we, I mean, Movie going now is almost purely escapist, yep. and so I don't, I don't know what this one. I mean, if uh, I can't did. solve a problem with mutant powers, I mean, what's the point, really? Right? I mean, <laughs> we like apparently movies now. It's like the simplest uh, solution to a problem, and it's one of the things I love about this movie is there is no solution by the end of it. There's no like everyone comes together and like now we figure out what to do from here. It's like no shit's fucked up, and it's still fucked up tomorrow. But we got to pick up the pieces and move forward somehow. Like it's not a movie that wraps well, itself up. You got to get paid. That's right. That's you know. Good job. Mookie Mookie. is gonna you know gonna go get paid and uh and you know we we have hopefully some insurance money. I guess will come in for Sal. That seems to be the idea that yeah something something has been lost here in this neighborhood. But and maybe that's what makes do the right thing incredibly depressing. Now you know you're talking about things have not changed too much. Uh, that it's, you know, we're sort of living through these headlines, um, that, of, of an event that we see fictionally in this film. Um, but yeah, the, even the, the ending, it's sort of pausing this sort of like optimistic viewpoint, but it's, it's extremely cynical too. That's yep. like, well, nothing much is going to change, even though that, that feels like the neighborhood will never be the same. It probably will, yeah. you know, for the most part. Uh, one thing I, I've always really liked about it is even until the right in the final moments when when Sal sort of sort of gives in to to rage, uh, that most of the neighborhood finds the character of uh, bugging out to be rather obnoxious. He's a jackass. <laughs> yeah, even his <laughs> they, friends they don't him like as him. An, <laughs> an instigator, and even the ones that may to some degree, like, you know, align with him politically. Uh, he's not the best messenger for that particular message. You know, he's, he's, a, he's abrasive. Uh, and it does seem to be totally fueled by, by ego, mm -hmm. uh, for, for him, which is interesting, you know, for, for this type of story that you're telling that even our main character Mookie is for the most part, I mean, you, you see him, challenge other characters on their their views on race in particular the john Turturro character the south son uh you see multiple sequences where he tries to call him out uh there's, there's one that's uh that, that great moment where he's uh saying like you're your fa favorite musician favorite artist is prince great and, scene. And he's he's insisting it's bruce no 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 it's bruce like <laughs> and i love Turturro's delivery there because it's not overly enthusiastic it it feels right. like a guy that's like you know, trying to proclaim a second choice is his favorite. But, you know, bugging out, for the most part, uh, the way Esposito plays him is, like, someone who is just looking for a thing. Yeah. He's just looking for a thing to, like, sort of hang his hat on. Um, 
and you go through all the secondary characters, even the ones who come in late uh, for the the pizza at the end. You know, they're annoyed because they just want to eat. Yep. And then what, what is this guy doing? Uh, you know, you have uh, Sam Jackson, you know, is uh, at the radio station um, who turns when, – when he sees things get bad, there's this, like, great way that the community unites uh, when, when the shit hits the fan. Right. But it doesn't mean that they were united, you know, two hours prior nope. on that. And I think that's sort of a bold choice by uh, Spike Lee to make that. This is not some sort of like that just because they live in the same neighborhood and they're from the same like, you know, ethnic background, that they're, they're lockstep with the same exact viewpoints on how to handle themselves. Right. Um, probably, probably, I probably identify with, you know, as a white guy from Kentucky with uh, the three old men just sitting around drinking beer and <laughs> bitching about things. I like those guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even they can't come to an agreement all the time. You know, yep. for the most part, there's usually one person that's like calling the other two idiots. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it's a great it is a great hang movie. It is just yeah. like I just enjoy my time in that neighborhood, uh, which is a lot different from She's Got to Have It. You know, yes. the, the sex comedy, uh, because, you know, something is about to boil over, but it's really right. fun for most of the runtime. Yeah, exactly. I think that's kind of what I was getting at until that kind of third act event. I won't call it a twist because it's not a twist. There's a build to it. And I think you had mentioned this kind of bold choice of using Buggin' Out, played by Giancarlo Esposito, as your, like, you know, as your spokesman when everyone in the neighborhood is like, oh, God, this fucking idiot. Like, I gotta listen to him. He's <laughs> just mad because he, he got kicked out. This is the issue. Like, he really wants his pizza. And I get that. But, like, this is not the guy you listen to. The other really bold choice it makes, and I remember this, this is one of my most vivid memories of watching a movie for the first time when I was younger, is that I was so shocked that Danny Aiello turned out to be the bad guy because for the whole movie, he's calming his idiot son down, John Turturro, who's constantly throwing around the N word and calling people animals and just being terrible. And Sal is constantly like, no, no, this neighborhood is good. These people are good. They pay good money. Everything's fine. And it really does, you know, I kind of talked a lot of already in this month about Spike Lee kind of seeing things coming down the road. And this is the idea of just because someone says the right things and is nice to your face doesn't mean there's not stuff bubbling underneath the surface. And clearly there was something there for Sal. And when he turns in that last third act, it's terrifying. Because like, oh, this is the guy who's been protecting everybody. This is the guy who's been nice. And then all of a sudden the N-word is flying around and he's throwing stuff and he's, but he's, he's pointing he's his finger. It's terrifying. He, it's it's just like bugging out as far as he's fueled by, fueled by his own ego. His, yep. He has this speech. My wall. Which when you're <laughs> – well, when you're, when you're hearing him explain to his son that he takes pride and that he's fed like generations of these these people. Like that he's seen their children grow up into you know young men and women and he knows that he put food in their belly. But when you hear that, you're like, oh, that's, that's cool. That's, that's cool nice. that he feels tied into that community that way. That he feels he's a part of it even though his son <laughs> keeps expressing what outsiders they are and defiance or outsiders. They're like interlopers. Uh, they're there to just profit off this location they detest. Um, but yeah, when he turns, it's not like it's that far of a switch nope. from like taking pride in feeding these people and feeling like they they should be beholden to him in some yeah. way. Aren't you grateful to me? Look what I've done yeah, in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm not you know <laughs> going after small business owners here, but he is there to make money too. Yep. I mean, that's, you know, it, it's not just out of the kindness of his heart that he is, you know, f- feeding these people like, and he's also very particular. I mean, he is like, uh, you know, uh, I guess a pre soup Nazi soup Nazi mm-hmm. from Seinfeld as far as, <laughs> you know, he's, uh, not the most gracious with the cheese. <laughs> right. That's extra, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh he he definitely uh is not into uh any sort of uh loud music at all. Actually I don't know if Sal's into to music. I think he just uh, it's like quiet. There's yeah. nothing going on in the background. Just the Sal's bubbling pizza, of cheese yeah. on the pizza. That's all he's interested yeah, yeah. in hearing. And I think it's interesting and, uh Spike Lee's sister, you know, Wow. that he's Fair that's enough. A, kind of an awkward uncomfortable yeah, it moment is. as well. It's a weird it's a weird bit of plot there. I think the other thing that's really interesting about Sal's character and especially his interactions with Mookie is I think it would have been so easy 
to turn him into the biggest villain of the piece. But I think you do, even at the end, you do still feel for him when he's talking about, like, this is the place I built. What do you want? I want my money. I want to get paid. You don't work here no more. Sal, I want my money. Your money couldn't begin to pay for the window you broke. Motherfucker, when the Raider Ahim is dead. I know he's dead. I was here. You remember? He's dead because of his buddy. That cocksucker started all this shit. He's responsible for that kid's death. And he wanted to close me, and you stood there like a fuck, and you watched him burn me down. I watched it. I also watched the cops murder Raider Ahim. You didn't get over from the fucking insurance anyway, Sal. You know the deal. What the fuck is wrong with you? This ain't about money. I could give a fuck about money. You see this fucking place? I built this fucking place with my bare fucking hands. Every light socket, every piece of tile. Me with these fucking hands. You know what the fuck that means? Yeah, it means pay me my motherfucking money. That's what it means, Sal. Even though he has just said some of the most vile stuff you can imagine, and I think at some level you understand why everyone in in the parlor and everyone in the neighborhood lashed back at him and why Mookie broke the window and why the fire was set. You get it. But in that moment, you do feel, I think, some level of empathy or some pity for him. Like he has put a lot of effort and a lot of years into this and literally built it with his bare hands. And like, it's it's a really affecting scene. I think, of course, a lot of that is because Danny Aiello knocks that scene out of the park. Like it's it's a fantastic performance. But I was surprised every time I watch it by how much I feel for him. Because with that severe of a turn in language, you kind of expect like, okay, this is, this is the white villain of this black story. And it, he doesn't go that route. And for a filmmaker as young as Spike Lee at this point in 1989, that's pretty impressive stuff. That's something I expect out of an older filmmaker, maybe. Yeah, I think now would probably be, uh, well, I don't know if it's a good time. You, you have picked a, uh, political hot potato with, uh, with Spike Lee as far as, you know, watching your words, but, um, <laughs> you know, he, ha- he definitely has a reputation and I, I brought up the, <laughs> the, the, the green book, uh, uh, saga for Mr. Lee, who, uh, Spike's favorite you know, movie, the right? right? <laughs> I, I quite liked green book. Uh, Spike I thought it Lee was, did uh, not. <laughs> Yeah, you know, he didn't, but uh, the way Twitter latched onto that, uh, and I actually was watching some interviews uh, earlier this evening, uh, because that's one thing I always, like, sort of held against Spike Lee. I'm like, he doesn't seem like the type of filmmaker that would give two shits about the Academy Awards. Like, that, you know what I mean? Like, that the image that I have of Spike mm-hmm. Lee and him being very concerned about Oscars. Like, yep. Steven Spielberg being fucking furious about not getting nominated for Jaws. I could see. I get. Yeah. I could. I could see dorky Spielberg, right, really caring about getting that gold trophy. But you watch Do the Right Thing. I I would never have picked in a million years. This guy, he watches the Academy Awards every year and has something to say about him. But what I was gonna say is like he and Twitter will like latch onto anything, uh, you know that he says as if it was like this sort of like angry black man persona. But if you actually watch interviews with him, he's like really engaging mm-hmm. and charming and almost playing it like a joke. Yeah, you know, I mean, he did not care for Green Book. But if you like watch even that that night at the Oscars, uh, I, I loved how he put it. Uh, they were like, you know, it, it was a very, uh, you know, journalist sort of trying to get their YouTube clip. And they're like, you know, you didn't seem too happy when Green Book won. And he's like, do you watch sports? Which, of course, anyone covering the Oscars, they probably don't. Don't know what sports are. Like, yeah. He was like. <laughs> I just thought it was a bad call. Just a bad call is all. It's just a bad call. And I'm like, that's totally different than thinking of this man as like raging over what these dorks, you know, are giving out their little gold trophy. So I, I think that the reputation of Spike Lee uh, probably has been, unfortunately, like anytime he says anything negative, it's like, well, he's just like in a frothing rage about it. Playing into that that trope of angry black man when he's mm-hmm. you watch interviews with him. uh you know he's a he's a charming dude. He's a, he he's a funny guy, and uh, yeah, I, I think that he does see things <laughs> probably with more shades of gray. And you'll see it. You'll see it in other films that we have coming up. Mm-hmm. Then people who are fans of his would actually want him to be. I think right. fans of his or people on Twitter now they want things to be black and white. And it's what you were saying about this film. They want the villain 
and we point fingers at him and we say, you're terrible, you're horrible, and I never liked you. Sal, yeah. I never liked your pizza. You're awful. It and does. he doesn't let you off the hook there in that final scene. It does make me wonder, like, of course, if you ask people, like, how do you think Do the Right Thing would do now? I would be like, oh, I would love it, blah, blah, blah. But I have my doubts because there is a certain so. – <laughs> Especially on Twitter, on film Twitter, there is a lack of understanding of subtlety of characters like this. Like, there should, there'd be a reaction of like, no, Sal is the villain. He should be like a mustache twirling, terrible villain here. But I don't think it has, I think if he was, I don't think it has the same impact. I think you need him to be a real human being. You know, like even, even John Turturro's character, which is the closest thing to like a true villain in this movie, just loves throwing out that N-word, loves insulting everybody. But I do love that scene you mentioned where they're talking, they're talking about like his favorite musician and his favorite baseball player and all this stuff. You know, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're Prince Ross. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Pino, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. Not your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I mean, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. <laughs> Laugh if you want to. You know, your hair is kinkier than mine. And the two of them are talking... Like friends. You know, it's not like Mookie is like, I will not talk to you, racist. You said the word. I am leaving. You know, like it's it's not that kind of life isn't like that, especially if you live in a place like New York. You're going right. to come across has... this kind of stuff. And you see, even if and it's the thing I love about this is it feels so lived in. There yes, doesn't there think. doesn't need to be a moment where you're like, we have been friends for nine years and this, these are the connections we have. You get it just from the way they talk to one another. And that is not an easy thing to do for any filmmaker, let alone a filmmaker is like, okay, let's tackle race relations in the, in the late eighties. Like, yeah, that little thing, let's fix that problem. Uh, but it does, I think that genuineness of this movie is what makes it lasting for me. Like, I never feel like do the right thing is preaching at me. And that's not a thing I can say about most movies that talk about race in the United States. Look, most of the people on Twitter, like Green Book, who hated Green, who hated Green Book, would make Green Book if they were making a movie about race relations. Yeah, they would make it that broad and I that agree. black and white. Yep, and that's the amusing thing to me about the people who tested that movie is that's exactly the type of movie they want. Yep. They just, <laughs> and I don't get it. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I don't think that do the right thing, and you know, for this podcast it can be a little misleading at times in the sense like with Spike Lee, I think it's a pretty good example. Uh, it's easy to find. Like if you're going down to 10, like we're going to play the hits, we're going to play the great artistic achievements. There, there's some pretty big gaps in here where mm -hmm. people were not keeping up with Spike Lee. Cause he's yeah. a guy that works a lot. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't think, you know, there's one film which talking about hot potato to cover. That's not on our list is bamboozled. And I, which I think just got I, a, it's getting a Criterion release that just got oh announced man. today. Oh. So. Um, it is, it is, uh, so so challenging. <laughs> like it is, yeah. it it goes from, uh, this is fucking phenomenal to making you cringe with like I don't like 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 Spike with Green Book. Like I don't know if that was a good call, Spike. Like <laughs> right. I don't know about that. Uh, but I I love watching this man make that type of stuff, and I right. think Do the Right Thing gets awfully close to that now. But it's mm. hard to see it now because it's been designated a classic. Right? Maybe bamboozled with a Criterion Collection twenty years from now, we'll also get that. But I'm telling you, in the last twenty years, I've not heard bamboozled thrown out there that much, and I think that would make no. people very uncomfortable if they just stumble across it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last thing I want to bring up is. Again, like not going, not taking the easy way out. If you look at this title and then you know there's a scene later in the movie where someone is giving advice, always do the right thing. You think like, okay, there's a simple answer. There's a right thing. And even watching this three or four times, there is a moment before Mookie destroys that plate glass window where you wonder, is this the right thing to do? Or is he doing these for the, the right reasons? Like, I love the fact that there's not 
it's not simplistic. It's not like, oh, this man wronged me personally, so I'm going to do this. It's Some of it is doing the right thing. Some of it is being taken over by the moment. Some of it is the day boiling over. Like, I think it's important that mm-hmm. this, like, takes place over a 24-hour period. This is not a thing where, like, this builds and builds and builds over a week, and this man treated me so poorly and treated the neighborhood poorly. It was, like, one snapshot, one moment in time. But it's not a movie, I think, that you can pick and, like, oh, these characters did the right thing. They made the right choices. There's mistakes made by absolutely everyone in this movie. There are no perfect people, which is another thing I love about it, is... A lot of times a filmmaker will make a protagonist, and especially if they're playing the protagonist, like, oh, this is the good guy. But, like, he makes mistakes. He doesn't see his girlfriend often enough. He doesn't see his kid. You know, like, when he goes on pizza deliveries, he's kind of, like, fucking off and not really doing his job. Like, this is not the person where you're like, ah, a man to look up to. This is the person we want everyone to be like. And I like that he feels real. I'll disagree with you only in the the sense that there is uh, one right thing that, that really does happen. There's no argument here. Okay. Uh, or from anyone. Uh, and that is uh, mother-sister uh, finally maybe hooking up with mm-hmm. Demare. Uh, the, those two characters. Like, that is the one thing. I love those two characters. When I come back to, it always puts okay. a smile on my face when I, when I see those characters. And they're, you know, kind of old-fashioned. Like, And we're talking about, like, old like old movies, classic movie sort of fashion of uh, berating uh, and bickering. Now, it's all one-sided. Mother, sister, yes. <laughs> tearing into Demir. And he just takes it um, with a smile on his face. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Demare is the, you know, he's the town drunk and he's the the one that for the most part probably has the best batting average of doing the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> but even he even he uh you don't have the type of beer he wants. He will give oh, you a little bit of a tongue he lashing. Not, so please. he's not exactly understanding <laughs> all the time, but no one is. So. Absolutely. Uh yeah, I don't, you know, the the hardest thing was uh, doing a podcast on do the right thing in particular from us. Uh, you know, you grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in Kentucky. What what do we got to say about it? What else can we add to it? Um, it's it's great. Uh, that's not yeah. a surprise here. Yeah. Um, so and it's, and it's also unfortunately, I think it's also a podcast where we're like we're talking about a bunch of movies and like this is one of those movies that to me is so good you could do like a minute by minute podcast on do the right thing. There is so much going on in every frame. In every minute of this movie, and some of it we just kind of have to rush through just for time because we don't want to give you a two and a half hour long podcast. We want to give you like a you know a tight hour over two movies, so it could be a little challenging with a movie like this. I fear, and we will we will not do a minute by minute uh, podcast to do the right thing. But the <laughs> the, the two white guys doing would, <laughs> well, the episode that I would be uh, really um uncomfortable with would be the uh ice cube bath that, that <laughs> Mookie is at gives least a girlfriend. minute that might be two episodes That's... That, yeah that and uh what you're talking about there is just uh you know just close-ups of the, the female form yep. uh the sweaty female form that you know but maybe those would be the most downloaded i mean it would be yeah, a form maybe. of i guess erotica from <laughs> mike and dave that you would never want to hear yeah, I think that's a good way Make to end. Make that a Patreon exclusive. It's a good way to end the episode. But also, <laughs> yeah. maybe, you know, were there any, you know, we talked at the beginning of, of this episode about Spike Lee and female characters. And there's a lot of, you know, in this movie, like, I don't think we dislike Rosie Perez's character, but there's an awful lot of nagging here. It's like she's essentially there to nag and then to have a sex scene. There's really, I don't know if he delves too deeply into this character. So this may be something we see repeated here. She does feel hidden away from the events of yeah. uh, that that neighborhood, which is strange, you know, that, that she's not really involved. Um, yeah, I mean, she dances in the credits. Yeah, I I, I could see if you're if you want to, you know, nitpick a little bit, that <laughs> might be the the, the one thing here. Uh, I'll let you. I'll let you be the guy saying <laughs> do the right thing. Not that good. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna, I think <laughs> editing that out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So we'll wrap up now. Um, pretty good. Pretty good start uh, to his career. We did skip one movie, but you know, if you're three years into a career and you make an American classic, that's pretty damn good. So uh, be interesting to see kind of where where you go from here. And the next two movies we're going to cover are Jungle Fever and Malcolm X. Basically the same movie, right? And one's about an interracial well, relationship, one's a biopic that's three and a half hours long. Same thing? Yeah. 
Same thing. Um, I, I mentioned you know, the one that I bamboozled from 2000 that you know I I would have <laughs> I didn't push for because I'm like I don't know if I want to talk about that like on the on the record. Um, <laughs> but that's the one from the list that I'm I'm missing, and I'm just gonna give you the opportunity because we're skipping another one, uh, and it's one that you you wanted on there, and I vetoed. You did, so, yeah. I really I'm, wanted to talk I'll about uh, Mo Better Blues. I haven't seen it in years, but like this is. Like, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about, like, me, like, watching Spike Lee and just being like, I gotta see everything this guy did. And for whatever reason, Mo Better Blues was the one that I really, really loved. Like, I rewatched over and over and over again. And it's interesting, because the reason you vetoed it is apparently there is some negative stereotypes of Jewish people in that movie. And as a teenager, that went totally over my head. Like, I had no... I was like, really? And then I started looking up online, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not... That's not great. Uh, maybe we should just go past that. Uh, but I also, like, I, I just really love the idea of a Spike Lee movie, like, purely about music. Like, purely about a, a musician. And, of course, it's got Denzel and Spike Lee and Wesley Snipes, uh, Giancarlo Esposito again, Robin Harris again. Like, it's, it's, I mean, I think it's a really good movie, uh, but I haven't watched it in years. So I'd be interested to rewatch it and see if I had the same reaction. Like, I remember it just feeling very cool. It was just a very cool movie. Uh, but I, it, even then, I don't think it's one of those like, yeah, it's his best. It's like we talk about the difference between best and favorite. There is, <laughs> There can sometimes be a huge gap between those two things. So, uh, so yeah, I believe it's on stars if you wanted to watch it. Oh, uh, there we go. It's been, it's been a while since our, our uh, you know, the, the sponsored by stars got their, their shout out that we're contractually required to, uh, to mention. So there we are. It's on stars. Good. Maybe Absolutely. I'll watch it now. Yeah, there you go. I knew I would convince you. All right. So Love that's me it. Some stars. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to follow <laughs> us on Twitter, follow us at, at directed by pod. And if you'd like to donate to our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash a podcast directed by. Magic big sleeves of flashing eyes, but just me in the white sheets.